listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Welcome, Judith. It's really wonderful to have you on Drishti Point. I know that you are um, quite an expert on the practice of yoga, having written several books on yoga and also your background in East-West psychology and your training as a physiotherapist. And we wanted to bring you on Drishti Point specifically to talk to you about the practice of restorative yoga. And I wanted to start off by asking how it was that you came to really develop and teach this style of yoga. Well, it was something that I learned originally from the Iyengar family in Pune, India, some of the basic uh, techniques and philosophy of it. And then it was spurred on in my life by the loss of my twin brother. And the year following his death, I did a lot of restorative yoga. Is pretty much all I could do was just to sink into the support of the props in the moment. And it was so profound for me and so helpful for me that it inspired me to write a book on restorative yoga. And then people got the book and they said, well, you teach us how to teach this. And uh, I've been doing a lot of that, although I do teach other, uh, the more traditional active asana and pranayama and meditation, but I, and anatomy and things. I, I love teaching restorative yoga. It's one of my dearest things to my heart. And what does a restorative yoga practice offer that maybe um, is not offered in an active practice? Well, there's two ways to look at it. Let me give you the definition of restorative yoga. Restorative yoga is the use of props to support the body in positions of comfort and ease to facilitate health and well-being and relaxation. So it's not something you would do instead of stretching or the more traditional poses like dog pose or shoulder stand. It's something that we all need to do. And our culture is very much about the North American culture and a lot of culture in the world is about doing, always doing, doing, doing. And we have words like multitasking and hypertasking, which is even more wonderful that we can do more than one thing at once, which really is not the way our nervous system is designed. So our our orientation generally in our culture is about action and results and doing. And what restorative yoga is, if you did a 20-minute pose, relaxation pose, it's about being. And it's it's equally part and it, as important a part of the human experience as action is reflection. And that's what restorative yoga is about. It's taking that time every day to create these four things, still, quiet, dark, and warm. Because mostly we're not still, we're not quiet, we've got lights on till all hours of the night, staring at computer screens, and we live in cold climates in the northern hemisphere. So still, quiet, dark, and warm are the one way, a shorthand of explaining what it is we're doing. How um, how much can a restorative yoga practice help also to develop a person's ability to practice sitting meditation? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the position of the body, and this is a physiologic fact, 
Uh, the position of the body changes uh, the brain function. And everyone, that sounds far out, but it's not because we know when we want to go to sleep, we lie down. <laughs> and when we lie down, it allows our parasympathetic nervous system as opposed to our sympathetic nervous system to be more dominant. We know we're going to sleep better if we can lie down because we get muscle relaxation, brain waves change, our hormonal uh, profile changes, and there's an intimate and profound connection between physical position and uh, brain states. So my definition of meditation, my approach to meditation done sitting, is that the focus is neither on the inside nor the outside, but it is just on what's arising, either the sounds and that are arising outside of me or the thoughts that are arising inside of me. I cultivate an attitude of, of watchfulness and presence with those without dancing away with the sounds from outside or dancing away with my thoughts. And that is, that is a more intermediary from our, if you think of our normal, wakeful, externally oriented, extroverted consciousness, you think of on the other extreme, restorative yoga, which is very introverted, eyes closed, eyes covered, horizontal position, withdrawn into the seat of consciousness, the center of, of your being. And then in between those, balanced on the fence of consciousness is meditation, where we don't lose track of our inner state and we don't lose track of the outer state, but we're not interacting with either one. So it's, um, you would, you would see restorative yoga as a type of meditation or to bring about the, the, uh, experience that allows for a person to, to find that balance in the consciousness being awake and yet also relaxed. Well, I would say it slightly differently. I would say that restorative yoga is meditative, mm -hmm. but it is different than meditation. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I'd like to come back to that point, but I'd like also to hear you talk a little bit about the science of relaxation and the importance of relaxation, uh, especially given what you said a little bit earlier on, in that our culture is very much an action-oriented culture, and it seems sometimes even the practice of yoga can also become uh, very action-focused, very doing-focused. Um, can you speak a little bit about what, for example, Shivasana offers within a well, yoga practice? It's. Let me make this distinction first. Sleep and rest are distinct physiologic states because you know that you can sleep and not be rested. Sometimes you sleep eight hours and you feel worse than you sleep six hours. I mean, sleep and rest are not the same, and we need sleep. Uh, many, most people need a minimum of eight hours. Most people have a huge sleep debt. They're exhausted, and there are all kinds of studies about how mental functioning and immune functioning uh plummet. They, they, they're, they're really impacted by the lack of sleep. Uh, your libido, your appetite, your energy, everything is affected by this um, lack of sleep. There's a lot of studies about that. But we also need rest. Rest is a different state. And that's what 
That's what Shavasana is. People used to do it. They used to sit out on their porch swing or lie out in the backyard and look at the stars or have times when there was rest. The Sabbath, there was a Sabbath, whatever your religion. I think we all need a Sabbath, even if you're not religious. We need a day of, of disconnecting from the internet, a day of resting. And what, what happens when, when a person is in a state of relaxation, is the parasympathetic nervous system all which controls the long-term functions of the body, like like digestion, assimilation, uh, repair, growth, fertility, uh, immunity, things that take you know hours, days, weeks, or months to do. It it allows that part of your nervous system that that controls those to have, if you will, the energy to do those things. And when you are sympathetic, this in, in dominated by the sympathetic nervous system, those things are repressed. So if you see, you see TV for any amount of time, you're going to see advertisements for headaches, indigestion, constipation, diarrhea, muscle aches. A lot of those things are directly related to hypersympathetic activity. And then you can't sleep or your sleep is disturbed and you get in a downward spiral. So it is very human, very traditional. Many cultures have rest time in the afternoon. It is a natural human rhythm. They're called the circadian rhythms, the natural human rhythm to rest some in the day. We, we were not intended to be at the computer from nine to nine doing repetitive tasks, focusing our attention outward. We were, designed i believe to have a wide variety of activities and to take take time to to have a rest in the daytime so there i've actually been part of a, several national institute of health studies that have studied exclusively restorative yoga mm-hmm. and we found some wonderful things if you'd like to know in these studies oh i was just going to ask you about that because i do know of your involvement with the uh, national institute of health yes please so one of them found that uh, with three 45-minute practices a week, that there was great uh, benefit to lowering uh, the, the high-density uh, cholesterol, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol, sorry, the low-density cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol. Uh, it, it helped to, re- uh, to lower serum triglyceride levels, and it also helped to stabilize blood sugar. Uh, and what was the second one? What what uh, is that an indicator of? Triglycerides. It's yeah. a blood fat, mm-hmm. um, and you know a lot of low density cholesterol and a lot of um, a lot of high triglyceride levels are associated with cardiovascular health, as is high blood sugar levels. Okay. Um, and so it was quite marked that relaxation reduces them because because stress causes cholesterol levels to go up, triglyceride levels to go up. When you reduce stress, you reduce those things. And to me, it's not a, it's not that the pose fixes the body or any particular vitamin or food or drug or surgery or chiropractic or massage, any of those things. What all of those things are, are facilitators so that the body can heal itself. So 
in particular restorative yoga, we put the body in positions of deep rest and support. And these, it's not just a physiological sense of muscle relaxation and heart rate slowing and blood pressure dropping, but it's also a psychological sense of being supported. And I, and I, it's true for me, and I'm guessing it's true for you that whenever we feel supported, we always relax. When we have people helping us do what we're doing or we know that there's financial support or, you know, social support for us or whatever we're in, um, we relax. And so there are, I believe, also psychological benefits. And one in particular is that anxiety, which is very common today, a lot of people suffer from anxiety, you cannot be anxious and relaxed at the same time. Okay, so um, what you're saying is that the this the the poses and many other types of therapies work not the way that we think we do, but because they allow the body to relax, and it's in that state of relaxation that the natural healing capacities of the body can work. That's my theory. Uh, uh, that's what, what I think is going on. Um, so for, you know, if I could say it's a little more about anxiety, is that when you're relaxed in Shavasana or afterwards, you're not anxious. And when you're anxious, you're not relaxed because one is dominated by sympathetic nervous system, one by parasympathetic. And these are really just rough ideas about the nervous system. It's very complex. Um, but they're useful uh, to get a foothold, a toehold with. Um, and so I think, for example, that doing a consistent practice of relaxation every day, 15, 20 minutes in your life, not only do I know physiologically it reduces anxiety, but I have the theory, the idea that it teaches the student what it feels like not to be anxious. So that, by contradistinction, helps you really become aware when you are feeling anxious. Instead of feeling anxious for a long time and then and not even really knowing what's going on. So you tr- once you understand what not being anxious is, then when you're feeling the opposite, you really notice it and you can take steps then to reduce your anxiety. So it also strengthens that capacity of awareness or mindfulness that allows... Um, us to not only not to be caught so much in those emotions when they do arise. Yes, it's not that we won't have them, but we don't have to dance with them. And to me, mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, these words that we use, which no one can really define, but everyone knows, that's what the entire practice of yoga is about. The most radical thing a human being can do is to be present. So I call it radical presence and restorative yoga and being deeply rested in those few moments and letting go of the external is a way to help you be really present. And I, I I don't think that being present in and of itself is the end point of practice. I think it is the beginning of practice because once I am really present, those rare moments that it happens, I always, always like what I say and what I do. I like the results, how it feels in me, and I like the results that I get around me and the people I live with 
in the people in my life and in the world in general. I like the interactions I have. I like what samskaras or residues are left. Because you know, the asana, even if it's restorative, pose, active, whatever, the asana is not the yoga. It's the residue the asana leaves or the meditation leaves or the pranayama leaves. That is the yoga. We've been speaking about restorative yoga, relaxation, and just very recently before the break, you were talking about the idea of radical presence. And in particular, the aim of a yoga practice actually being the consciousness that awakens as a result of placing ourselves in certain postures or positions. Um, And what you said just before the break was when we have that presence, when you're in that presence, you like what you do and what you say. Um, Is that... How can... What does it look like when we have achieved a state of complete relaxation we finished a yoga class and now we're going out into the world and we take that with us how does it feel in terms of the behaviors and the the words that we speak what does it look like well thank you thank you for having me back again um i think it's really simple i think it manifests as kindness it manifests as respect. It manifests first as kindness to myself and respect for myself and kindness and respect for every sentient being. For everything that I come in contact, there is a respect. If I cannot treat the people I encounter in the world with basic human respect, and I need to look at my practice and see what's happening. So can I treat the waiter who's not acting in a way that I would like? Can I treat that person with respect? Can I treat the person in the dry cleaners who's helping me and going slower than I like? Can I treat them with respect? Can I treat the car in front of me who's driving 1.5 miles an hour slower than I want to go, just enough for me to notice? Can I treat that person with respect? And... That, to me, is one of the basic, the most basic manifestations that your practice is seeping into your bones. And, and and for a teacher, I would say the number one requirement is to respect yourself and respect the students and respect the practice in that order. And that all touching, all instructions, all teaching comes from a deeply rooted place of kindness and respect. That's very beautifully put. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, there's a lot more I'd love to talk to you about. One, one of which is one of the thoughts that came up as I was listening to you speak about levels of relaxation was the practice of yoga nidra. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about yoga nidra as a as a practice that may also um, help to achieve what you're speaking about, this place where the nervous system and the, the mind and body can completely relax and feel supported. 
Yes. Um, yoga Nidra, as you know, is a guided practice. Mm-hmm. And the way I teach Shavasana, I started, I might give a few images, a few, you know, rounds of breathing, and then I leave at least 15 minutes of silence. And the reason I do that is because all the research shows that, that when you stop listening to someone else, you actually go deeper. So I think yoga nidra is a beautiful practice. I like it. I think it's very appropriate at some times. But my experience of yoga nidra, when I put on a tape, you know, and lie down, mm-hmm. and I follow the instructions of the teacher, is that I've never gotten to the end. Mm-hmm. Because it works. In other words, <laughs> it takes me into my own experience. Because if I'm listening to the other person the whole time, then I'm having that person's experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think it can be quite useful to do guided meditations like Yoga Nidra and others. But in a way, please forgive me, there is no such thing as guided meditation. Because mm-hmm. if it's guided, it's not your meditation. It's someone else's. So I think it's very useful. I support it. I suggest it to people to use it, um, to take them in deeply. And at the same time, I very much want people to have some times of relaxation with silence, without eat, not because in some ways it can be distracting it because it takes you out of yourself. Now, you mentioned 15 minutes of silence. That's really remarkable Um, in the sense that it's very unusual to be in a yoga class where there's just 15 minutes of a teacher not talking. Well, you have to come to my class. (laughs) I'd love to come. It is a discipline it is a discipline for the teacher. To, I allow 20 minutes for Shavasana and have people set up a little bit before that. They lie down. In the first few minutes, they're kind of getting used to it or I may be talking to them for three or four minutes. And then I stop talking. So I say, you know, if you're a yoga teacher, give your students the profundity of silence in that beautiful space where they're not on their computer, there's no demands on them, there's no phones, there's nothing. This is the only place in time they're ever going to have that, very likely for most people in their life. And if they're busy lives during the week, it's hard to have that. And so they've done their asana and their pranayama and meditate, whatever, and now they're resting. And it is, I think, as I said, a discipline for the teacher. I sit there, I meditate. Um... You know, I watch my students. I make sure the environment remains straight. Sometimes I bring my iPad and I study uh, a specific part of the anatomy. Right now I'm studying the posterior triangle of the cervical spine. It's so complicated. Learning it again and looking at it. I might look at that for a few minutes. But mostly I just sit quietly with them and I don't need to do anything till I ring my bells and bring them slowly up. Um, it is a gift. It is profoundly important. For us to have. Mm-hmm. I've I've always um, I've always found I've always found myself nourished in silence. So I can I 
can appreciate what you're saying and how important it is to um, maintain silence in a yoga class. If I may, I think that part of the reason people balk at the idea of 20 minutes of Shavasana is they've never done it. And let me explain what that means, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, and, and before I say that, I will say to you that I cannot even count the number of times that I've taught Shavasana with sufficient propping that people will say, and I, and they say, how long was that? Five minutes? I say, no, that was 25 minutes. And they're incredulous. So here's the thing. I, I divide Shavasana into three levels. Would you like to hear about that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the first stage takes about 15 minutes. Now, that's the average person. You know, you, for example, if you're a practitioner, experienced practitioner, you can probably do it in seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. You'll, and the first stage is what I call physiologic relaxation. And that's you lie down, you, you know, you've got your eye bag on, your blanket, your under your knees and your Achilles and your wrists are propped and your head and your neck and you're all happy. And it takes a while to get the wiggles out. You know, your mind is jumping around like a Mexican jumping bean. You move your arms, you're trying to get your shoulders just right. You know, you're a little restless. Your attention is still outward, and it takes about, as I said, for the average person, it can take as much as 15 minutes for them to really get physiologically, measurably with, uh, measurably relaxed if we had them hooked up to machines, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So 15 minutes of relaxation is, is really just to get to this, to, and then Shavasana begins. Mm-hmm. Shavasana begins when relaxation is complete. And Shavasana to me is a, a Prachahara state, which is the fifth limb of the Ashtanga Yoga. And Prachahara means, as you probably know, the conscious withdrawal from the senses. So Shavasana to me begins when you're lying there and you have no ambition. You have no ambition left. You have no ambition to move. You have no ambition to act. You have no ambition to open your eyes. You've lost, you, you kind of hear things around you, but you're not curious. You have no ambition. And you feel that you're, there's a great deal of distance between you and the outside world. Do you know that state that I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. To me, we have to go through physiologic relaxation long enough to where then we then shift into what I'm calling Shavasana. And then there's the third state, which I call a shunya, non-emptiness. And that's kind of, that's the state where you only know when you come back. Like sometimes you're in Shavasana and you go into that, that Prachahara state, that Shavasana state. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the teacher rings the bells and you're back, but you weren't asleep. Yes. And okay, that, that's a, that's a, a interesting state in which there is, I believe, this is my theory, a disconnect between a disconnect between I and the experience. In other words, you can't say, oh, wow, I'm in a shunya now, because that means the experiencer is there. There's a separation between the experiencer and the experience. Mm-hmm. It's it's a different state. And so I always say to my trainees who I train in restorative yoga and to my students, stay for 20 minutes, 15 to get the physiologic relaxation. Let your students get that and give them at least five minutes in Shavasana. And I can't 
Don't have the studies for this, but I, but I have an intuition and a hypothesis that that five minutes of Shavasana, after you've gotten physiologically relaxed, Shavasana begins. Those five minutes, that's when the most healing happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most people have never gotten there. They'll say to me, oh, I hate Shavasana. It's just a waste of time lying there. How long do you do it? Five minutes. That's not Shavasana. That, that's not even relaxation, much less Shavasana. Mm-hmm. Because Shavasana incorporates relaxation and also incorporates a profound shift of consciousness, a profound emotional and mental shift. Now, I'd like to come back to a, a point we touched on earlier that you said, because I, I have, I'd really like to um, explore it further. You know, when I've practiced restorative yoga myself, it feels as though something is not just happening physiologically, but also my brain is being reshaped. Oh, that's a lovely image. And, um, I have found that the more that I practice um, restorative yoga or yoga nidra, it becomes, and, and my brain takes a different shape, it becomes easier to practice meditation. And I'm wondering, you know, at the beginning of the interview, we talked a little bit about it, and you said that they are distinct. And I'd like to explore that a little bit more. How are they distinct? And well, what, what, how would you define meditation? What I said was that sleep and rest are distinct. Yes. And that restorative yoga is meditative. Right. So in our norm, this is the way to think of it. In our normal wakeful consciousness where our focus is outside, we have what you might call a positive brain. And this is not a pejorative, judgmental positive. It is active, positive, energy moving up and out, young, kind of state, right? Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Get you out of bed in the morning, get you going to your yoga class, teach it. You know, it's a, it's good to have upward, outward energy. But that's the focus of our society is always upward and outward. So restorative yoga is the opposite. It is negative brain. So in, metaphorically speaking, cool brain, it's not literally a temperature cooling, mm-hmm. but it is a negative brain. Like when you do shoulder stand or you do supported bridge pose or, or elevated legs up the wall, Vibrita Karani with your head down, there are profound physiologic changes and the subjective experience is it's very difficult not to close your eyes. It's very difficult not to go deeply inside because of the the circulatory effects and the hormonal effects mm-hmm. of, of those physical positions. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's a negative brain. Mm-hmm. And meditation to me is in the middle. It is the experience of the balancing of the hemispheres. Mm-hmm. Negative and positive yin and yang. It is that state that lives on the line between yin and yang. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. And so it, it is for people, if I may, mm-hmm. it is either external nor internal but it is both mm-hmm. very interesting thank you um, Judith I'd love to um, ask you you know you've been teaching for such a long time 
um, yoga and I'm wondering what your uh, hopes are for what you know yoga is so popular these days it's in the media it's in it's on magazines it's everywhere what are your hopes for um, for how people can see and understand and practice yoga well my hopes have to do a lot with teachers I would first of all I feel that it is a profound honor and privilege to be able to teach this art, uh, this science, this this traditional wisdom. Um, I feel humble and grateful to be able to do it. I think I I know that I hold the, if you will, profession of teaching very as a very much a sacred art. Mm-hmm. Because we get to, as yoga teachers, help people find themselves. And what I believe we need to do as teachers is be the mirror that reflects back the inner radiance and inherent goodness in each human being so that they can find it in themselves. And that that is a profoundly important thing. We as we are not any more important than any other people, but that process of reflecting back the inner radiance and inherent goodness in each person is what we need to be clear that we're doing. And as we do that, as we become the yoga, as we live the yoga, as we as we are able to find our own inner radiance and inner goodness and not lose track of it and mirror it back to the person who's in front of us, they are going to understand the depth of it. They're going to be connected to themselves and to life. as That's what we're learning to do, to be deeply connected to self and life. There is no separation. And, in fact, separation is the greatest illusion. Uh, scientists will tell you there's no separation. It's all just a big sea of electrons. Uh, so... <laughs> so, I think we should not worry about the most superficial types of yoga that are around and the most superficial practices and the all about how the body, how to lose weight with yoga and all that sort of thing. I think we should deepen our own practice and become a better and better mirror to the students and, and even to the world. And that rooting into our own being is what changes everything. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been really wonderful to have you with us on Drishti Point. And I um, am looking forward to seeing you in Vancouver when you're here. Do you have anything to say about what you'll be doing here in Vancouver? So I'm working a a three-day training then later in the year, I'm coming back for a five-year training. Uh, the first one is on the lumbosacral spine, mm-hmm. but I always teach philosophy with anatomy. <laughs> and then, as you can probably tell, and then I'm going to teach a restorative yoga tra- teacher training later in the year. But I'd like to leave your listeners uh, with a quote, uh, one of my favorite quotes, if if that 
meets your needs. Absolutely. This is an original quote. In the face of all odds, against all rationality, without any proof, just love. Love yourself, love others, love the world, love the divine. No holding back. Beautiful words for us to end on. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings. (laughs) 